Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. And so I tried to protect him with my body. And he was praying. And I kept saying, it's only snow. But, but basically, I was trying to convince myself of that. That is the sound of David Brashears, a filmmaker, a world-famous mountaineer, bracing for the impact of an avalanche on Mount Everest back in April 25th, 2015. That is when snow swept into the lowest camp on Mount Everest. It killed 21 people after a massive earthquake that shook Nepal. We're going to take you back to that moment, but we're also going to zoom out and look at the forces that made that moment what it was. Specifically, this mountain has become an industry, and we're going to take a closer look at that. And we are lucky, uh, kind of ironically, to have a very unique perspective on what happened in Everest that day. Uh, from someone who is a journalist but was not being a journalist at the time, uh, from someone who is not a mountaineer but was in the base camp, uh, someone who's uh, kind of a proxy for you and me and how we might understand what happened uh, on those days. Uh, I'm talking about Safadi Narula. She's a quartz reporter who took a sabbatical to work for Glacier Works, a nonprofit in Everest Base Camp, and was there on that day. Hi, Safadi. Hi, Sabri. So... You wrote a compelling article for Quartz about your experience at the foot of Mount Everest uh, during um, last year's avalanche. And before we talk about that, what brought you to Everest in the first place? David Brashears, who you just mentioned, brought me to Everest. He asked if I wanted to take a leave of absence from my job as a reporter. He has a nonprofit organization called Glacier Works, and he wanted me to be there as kind of a PR person, hmm. which was going to be a fun break from journalism. So it, it took you eight days to actually trek out there once you got to Nepal. And then you were only in base camp for, for 10 days before the avalanche. Can you tell us what it was like there and what, what you did with your time? Sure. You know, at base camp, you, you're basically trying to stay warm all the time. It's a lot of downtime and a lot of socializing and a lot of reading. Our little Glacier Works expedition was camped with the Everest ER, and the Everest ER is this Emergency medical team. Room. Yes. Yeah. It's volunteer doctors, and they're there to take care of all the climbers at base camp and all the Sherpas and, and local staff who help the expeditions. Um, so there were three doctors, and I just got to know them. There's Wi-Fi at base camp, and... It worked my first couple of days, so I sent an email to family and friends kind of describing base camp and saying, oh, it's so big, it takes 25 minutes to walk from one end to the other, and I'm not sure these doctors like me very much, and, you know, <laughs> I'm waiting for David to get back, and the food is really great, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the Wi-Fi went out, so I just read a book and wrote in my journal and sat and drank tea. <laughs> you had your um, little flip phone, right? I had a little, not even a flip phone, like a little, it was a Nokia phone that someone had gotten for me in Kathmandu. You could text and call people, and so I called my mom every night. <laughs> <laughs> had you ever been, like, on a camping trip of this, like, length or duration before? I know you're not a climber, but are you, like, an outdoorsy person? I try to be an outdoorsy person, but the longest camping trip I'd been on before this was probably five nights. Um, luckily, base camp is pretty cushy as far as camping goes. Sounds almost like an 
Mm, a semi-serious amusement park atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, that's what the critics say. They say Base Camp has been turned into Disneyland. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. The ecosystem and the people and kind of how things work is so complicated. You really can't have a good grasp on it, all the different personalities and all the different motivations and kind of really what's going on there in this 1,200-person city of tents, unless you've been going back for years and years. Let's talk a little bit about that kind of ecosystem and the, and the different sort of people you encountered. I had mentioned Sherpas before, mm -hmm. uh, and I realized that maybe I'm assuming people know more about Everest than they do. What is a, a Sherpa, and why are they so important? Well, gosh, I hope I answered this question properly. E everyone who knows about Everest, you know, thinks about Sherpas, and there's a lot of criticism about, oh, you know, modern Everest climbers are just ferried up to the summit on the backs of Sherpas. And, oh, who are they, though? Um, Sherpas are an ethnic group in Nepal, and mainly the people who are hired to work on mountaineering expeditions in Nepal tend to come from the Sherpa ethnic group. Wait, so Sherpa isn't a noun that means, like mountain helper it's actually an ethnic group that's why we capitalize it yes oh wow i know right i think you Catch can the grammar clues sabri come on <laughs> capitalizing that <laughs> i thought it was just because it's a big mountain you just capitalize stuff no <laughs> no they are they are an ethnic group if you're not on some sort of expedition how much does it cost to go on this trek and did you see any of these sort of parachute-in yeah. rich vacationers that one hears about. Were they actually there? So those people are there. There are, I mean, gosh, it's complicated. What can I say? It, it, What it costs to go on one of the good expeditions, and this is what when people say there's a yellow brick road to the summit, there's some truth to that because some of these expeditions have gotten so good at going back year after year and establishing a system that it's almost like automatic. It's just kind of very routine and you go and you spend a lot of money and you do the same setup every year. But these clients are usually paying on average $40,000, $60,000 for the expedition. On the other hand, what's happened recently and what I heard a lot of talk about this year at Base Camp was that a lot of local expedition outfitters had sort of popped up and they are hiring Sherpas who aren't as experienced and they're bringing clients who want to pay less. So you can go for $20,000 with a cheaper expedition, and then you might find yourself at Everest Base Camp using an ice axe for the first time. So you are in the midst of this cast of characters, uh, and you um, are keeping a journal. Do you remember what the last thing that you wrote in your journal before the earthquake was? Mm. I remember the night before writing that too many damn people come to climb this mountain every year. It's so crowded, and the weather really sucks right now, and we have these two hapless trekkers stuck in the Everest ER, and they're using up all of our resources. And this is a funny thing about base camp, too, is that trekkers are kind of treated as second-class citizens. Trekkers, just, you mean just like random, random hikers? Yeah, they're not random hikers. I mean, they're hiking to base camp usually. So there's a rock or a series of rocks kind of like 400 meters away from the entrance of base camp where all the trekkers have to stop. But the, the night before the avalanche, two trekkers had come up and one of them had very, very bad altitude sickness. So 
the Everest ER had to take care of them. And then we were hoping we could get a helicopter to get them out the next morning. So that was what I was thinking about. And then five minutes before the avalanche, I was on Facebook because I'd gotten online for the first time. And I was on Facebook posting pictures of me basically partying with the Indian Army climbers the day before. So imagine at 10 a.m. at Everest Base Camp, 17,500 feet, all these Indian Army guys and me dancing arm in arm, drinking beer, singing. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the the next day, five minutes before the avalanche hit, I was on Facebook posting pictures of it and saying, this is how the Indian Army prays to Everest. Look, I'm making friends here. Isn't this funny? And then... <laughs> And then, and then the ground started moving. Describe that. It felt like, and the way I described this in the article I wrote, was it felt like being on a boat. And it registered for me, but I wasn't concerned. And it took me a second to realize what it was because there was always so much going on at base camp. And, and David had even said once, it's just like a giant construction project. But I sort of ignored it and kept writing my email. And then I was like, oh, oh, I think this is an earthquake. And then you don't think to be scared. Because earthquakes, I don't know, the earthquakes I've seen or heard of or been in, you know, in my my short life on the East Coast of the U.S. have never resulted in any damage. And we were living in tents. So it wasn't like anything was going to fall down on us. Right. So I was like. Famous last word. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Except for the mountain. Right. One of our Sherpas and our government liaison officer, they started looking around in the sky. And I realized, oh, they're looking for an avalanche. Oh, great. I'm going to see my first avalanche. That's really what I thought because we'd been hearing them every night and you knew that they happened in the mountains around base camp. And base camp is just sort of surrounded by mountains on all sides, but they're all kind of far away. So I was looking around and thinking, this will be great. I'm going to see a really pretty avalanche. I've never seen one before. And then what I saw was <laughs> I was like, that is not the type of avalanche I thought I would ever see. Because um, it didn't look like the avalanches you see in the movies. It was just like a big wave of ice and snow kind of, I mean, it was so unrealistic looking. And I sort of realized it was going to hit us. And I realized that just as our, the Sherpa and the government liaison officer started running. And then I turned and I started running. And it was like, Oh my God, the world is coming to an end. Oh my God, everything is about to be wiped out. Oh my God, we're doomed. Oh my God. And then, of course, I tripped and fell flat on my face. <laughs> sure. Oh my which, is, which is funny in retrospect, but was very, very scary. And luckily, our government liaison officer, he just grabbed my arm and, and got me to my feet. And I stuttered out like, thank you, because I was so shocked that when we're running for our lives, someone would stop and help you up. So he helped me up, and then we both ran, and then it hit us. And... It was really hard to keep your feet under you, but I sort of figured that keeping my feet under me was going to be really important for survival. I didn't want to end up upside down and buried. I was sure I was going to be buried. So I thought, okay, let me just try and stay as close to the top. I can't believe that you were able to think those things at that time. <laughs> well, that's all I was thinking. I mean, and people have asked me, like, wasn't your life flashing before your eyes? No, like trying to preserve yeah, your life exactly. is flashing before your eyes. Exactly. Right? So I was trying to do all of that, and then it was just such a relief when the whole thing had passed and the snow was really only up to my knees. And we learned later that what had hit and done most of the destruction at base camp was actually a wind blast from the avalanche, and not that much snow or ice had fallen 
onto us. So all of our stuff was destroyed and flattened, but it wasn't totally covered by snow. But yeah, I was really relieved, and then I was totally hysterical. Right. It turned out uh, 21 people died in that. Yeah. What What did you even do after? I screamed because I thought I was all alone, and I didn't know if anyone could hear me or anyone could help me. So I'm screaming and screaming. And then the government liaison officer popped up in front of me, and he was wearing a red jacket, and he was he was okay. And then our Sherpa, our cook, uh, stood up in front of me, and he was okay. And the three of us just sort of trudged through the snow to the Everest ER. And it was just a war zone. A lot of blood, a lot of crying, a lot of chaos. We are focusing on one particular slice of this, but obviously, I mean, you know, almost 9,000 people died right. in, in thousands of years of history got turned into rubble uh, out in the rest of Nepal. And I presume you saw some of that on on your way finally out, out. I saw a little bit. On my way out, I think I was also really in a daze. I mean, David sent me walking down from base camp ahead of him to Ferriche. And Ferriche is a post for the Himalayan Rescue Association. And so when I got there, the doctors who I had been with at base camp were there, Rachel and Meg. Um, and Rachel, she had injured her knee very badly in the avalanche. She had been outside when it hit and, like me, was hit by it. And she was knocked off her feet and her knee cracked open. <laughs> and she'd sewed it up by herself at base camp and just kept on going and helping people. And, you know, she got down to Ferriche. And by the time I got there, Rachel's insurance had agreed to send a helicopter for her. And I was taking a bucket shower in this lodge in Ferriche, trying to get this blood out of my hair and just still totally a mess. And Meg knocks on the door and says, Svati, the helicopter's coming. There's a seat for you. Do you want it? So I run frantically, jumped on board, and then we were whisked away. And so I didn't get to see a lot of things on the trail um, that might have been damaged because I I flew out for a big part of it. Uh, With this experience behind you and with you, Mm. um, how do you look back at the pre-avalanche base camp ecosystem? Climbing Everest is not the accomplishment that I used to think it was. Maybe anyone can do it with enough determination and resources. That's not to say that you can just throw money at the mountain and show up and get there. And base camp, I really thought was kind of a toxic atmosphere. And when I left, I was like, good riddance. This place is crazy. Um, because there are a lot of big egos and everyone's trying to (laughs) run their business. And so when I left, I said like, good riddance. But also as soon as I got home, I wanted to go back Mm -hmm. and I still really want to go back. Zvati Narula, reporter with Quartz. Thanks. Svati took us to the middle of that rushing pile of ice. But if we want to zoom out a little bit and get a picture of how this mountain is an industry and has become that over time, we should talk to David. David Rashears is a filmmaker, uh, one of the world's most accomplished mountaineers, and he is the guy that uh, Svati went to Everest with. David, thanks for calling in. Happy to be here. 
from reading Svati's story, it does seem like uh, Everest and the experience of, of being there has changed a lot since you started going there, I guess, in the 1980s. Um, do you see those changes as, as good or bad, and, and are they reversible at all? Well, the changes are actually quite profound, given the amount of time I've been on Everest. The first time I was on the south side, which is, of course, the traditional route, we had the whole mountain to ourselves. So that would have been one expedition and maybe 34, 36 people total. Half of those are more than half were Sherpas. Um, this year when I was there with, with Swati, um, as I flew over camp, I was seeing a camp that stretches over a couple of kilometers and had more than 1,100 people in it. The mountain is is now, um, it's no longer tenable. You cannot have that number of people on on the mountain. It doesn't work. Nepal has said that they're looking at limiting uh, the number of inexperienced climbers who can come. Do you think that they'll be able to do that? Do you think it's a good idea? Nepal, especially the government of Nepal and the Ministry of Tourism, are making all sorts of comp, uh, proclamations uh, over the past decade, of, uh, none of which they ever follow through on. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge revenue stream for them. Let's just play around with some numbers here, whether they're accurate or not. Let's just say 300 people had signed up to climb Everest last season at $10,000 per person for the permit to set foot on that mountain. That's $3 million, and it comes with with no strings attached. It just goes into the government treasury. Tim has coined it uh, the sort of Everest industrial complex. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, but it does mean there's a lot of economic forces pushing people onto that mountain uh, and, and pushing the government to probably want to keep them there. And yet you say there's got to be a limit. Where is that limit, and, and, where, and, and, and why do you say that it's reached it? So you will find what we found, 80, 90 people backed up behind a single ladder in the icefall, a place known at times to be a, a very uh, risky place to be, waiting two and a half hours to climb a ladder. It doesn't make sense. There needs to be some sort of governance. The, the Nepalese government only wants to sell permits, period. That's it. Money in the national treasury. The expeditions who bring the people there, the agencies, the operators, have no incentive whatsoever. It's like the fox uh, guarding the chicken coop. Are, are the operators really supposed to act against their own self-interest and say, yeah, I'm only going to bring 10 people? But one thing people should realize about it is that it is a business. Take out the equation of climbing Mount Everest. The mountain has just been commodified. It's about money. One of the things that Savati told me is that she met people who were coming as clients to climb Everest, who had sold their homes to finance these really expensive trips. As, as someone who has done this, as someone who has made uh, movies about this, you're the co-producer of the new Everest movie that came out last week. What is it about Everest that makes it possible to create this economic machine? Like, What is the obsession that drives people there? Trying to understand anybody's intent and motive is, is nearly impossible. But I've seen, you know, the same people, of course, over 32 years. They make tremendous sacrifices 
uh, to be on that mountain. And some are quite wealthy and it's, they call it themselves a bucket list thing. And I never understood that term because who wants to put Everest into a bucket? Does it really belong <laughs> in a steel bucket? But you, it, 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 it begs the question of what is the tug of that mountain? Really, it's about this place that just the name holds in our imagination. Um, it was named after Sir George Everest, who was working on the survey of India. Now, I've often asked myself, what if, what, what if he was Sir George Pinklebottom? You know what I mean? It would be a more fun mountain Mount, name. Mount, Mount, Mount Pinklebottom. So what I'm saying is there's something in a name. And a lot of people will tell you it's actually Everest, not Everest. That's the person's the last name. Are we going to have to re-record this podcast now? No. But what happens with Everest is something very simple. I could tell you I ran a marathon. You could say which one. And then I could name one of a thousand. And then you could ask how fast I ran it. And that would immediately tell you at two hours and 40 minutes, I was a pretty decent runner. Or at seven hours, I basically fast walked it. If Zvati and I were in a room together and Zvati had climbed Everest and we were both asked, have you climbed Everest? We would say yes. And we would, uh, whether I had used 10 or 15 bottles of oxygen and had a team of Sherpas shepherding me up the mountain and I had barely done anything except wipe my nose or if Zvati had carried her own loads, used very little oxygen and stood on top, which is a monumentally greater achievement. But we don't measure people. We, Our eyes grow wide. We say, you climb Mount Everest, you climb that dangerous, killer, difficult mountain. So, so, you, you you get this big glow of approval and these and these kudos that separates you very clearly from from people who have may have done harder things on smaller mountains, but it's not Everest. David Brashears is a mountaineer, a filmmaker, and the founder of the nonprofit Glacier Works. And a friend of Zavatis. Thank you for joining us, David. All right. Bye bye. So, Tim, what have we learned? Maybe something like having a huge mountain like Everest in your backyard is not unlike for a country having a huge reservoir of oil underneath. It brings them a lot of pride and potential, but it also brings them a lot of problems that they can't quite deal with, as is shown in Nepal's sort of inability to regulate access to the mountain and their dependence on the economy that it provides. We didn't mention it during the show, but the World Travel and Tourism Council estimates that almost 9% of Nepal's annual economic production comes from tourism. And that's a lot to see shrink if you're a small country. Yeah. And now for something completely different. At Quartz, we report on surprising discoveries. They are the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. Uh, This week's actuality surprising discovery is a bundle of marijuana, 26 pounds worth, that fell from the sky and crushed an Arizona doghouse. (laughs) I'm sorry. 
It's worth ten thousand dollars. <laughs> if you live near the border, I guess that's like a hazard uh, you you have in your life, which is the erroneous drug smuggling shipment falling from the sky. Was it from uh, a plane or? Uh, as yet unknown, investigators have not yet determined. Uh, could be a plane, could be a drone, which has uh, been used for drug smuggling efforts. Could be a catapult. Uh, they've been catapulting uh, marijuana over the border in the past. Uh-huh. Um, I just feel for the German Shepherd Hulk, whose house was destroyed in this tragic incident. Well, but Hulk did get some compensation to make him feel better about the whole incident, I feel. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm afraid not. <laughs> I, the, the family in question uh, promptly phoned the police, good citizens they are, uh, who took the drugs and, as far as I know, did not give them any money for them. Hmm. Does it say how much it weighed? Uh, 26 pounds. Hmm. I wonder if it weighed 30 pounds before the police were called, if you know what uh, I mean. That's, irres- that's irresponsible speculation. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't have it on this. It's not this kind of show. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just, you know. Never well, we mind. Know what happens when Sabri gets a surprising discovery? <laughs> you know. Never. Um, all right. Well, that's all the time we have. If you would like to learn anything else about avalanches or marijuana falling from the sky or anything else happening in the economy today, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. And while you're at Quartz, sign up for our daily brief email. It is the perfect way to start your day. And by the way, we would love to know what you think of this podcast, what you like, what you did not, and uh, any ideas you have. Um, you can reach us at mpqz at marketplace.org, or you can holler at us on Twitter. Uh, I am at Sabritree, uh, S-A-B-R-I-T-R-E-E. Tim is at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. <laughs> you can also follow the show at, at @actualitypod, where we will occasionally make announcements or request your participation. And you can leave us a message at 802-430-6779. Many thanks to Jay Gorski for making our theme song. Thanks to Claire Tennisketter for producing this program. And to our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz for their benevolent uh, dictatorship. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. Thanks for listening. See you guys uh, next next time with more stories from around uh, around the world's economy. Bye.